Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Solutions. I'm Grant. And I'm Elias. And today, we're going to be talking about misinformation and the subsequent rejection of reality that we tend to see. So this is going to cover more serious topics like climate denialism and COVID denialism, as well as claims about election fraud uh, that led to the assault on the Capitol January 6th. Not necessarily specifically looking to, into all of these claims and how they come about, but sort of looking at it systemically. What kinds of people propagate these lies? Uh, why are they believed by so many different people when sometimes they're so obviously false? And what can we do about this? So um, this episode, we have decided to deviate from our typical structure. Last episode, we did all of our research on our own, and then we hopped into the first episode. You know, uh, very little uh, corroboration between Elias and I. Uh, this time, we still did most of our research separate, but we collaborated a little bit. We shared some of our uh, sources and articles with each other, um, but we're still trying to maintain two different perspectives on this. If you guys have any input for us about how we can improve, uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. Uh, Elias just created the new Discord. And then, as always, we'll have an article on medium.com forward slash solutions, where we're going to have everything that we talk about here, uh, all of the sources written out and an article. So that way you guys can read that um, when this episode goes up. So we figured we'd start this out by um, going over what exactly constitutes misinformation. And the reason it's good to kind of like get this out of the way is because I noticed when talking to a lot of people about this topic that uh, a lot of people kind of have their doubts about the entire concept, you know, what is truth, what is reality. And specifically when, you know, when you get into the deeper, more political subjects, who gets to decide what is misinformation and what isn't, right? This is a huge concern that people have had um, really ever since these topics started becoming well known. So... We want to use the strictest definition possible of misinformation. And so basically, when we look at separating truth from falsehoods, we want to look at where there's evidence and we want to look at where there is rational thought that can be put together to back up particular claims. And so when we look at these claims, we want to look at, okay, well, what is the most up-to-date information? What is the best way we have of you know arriving at our conclusions? And... The best way that we typically go about this is through fact checkers. They're sort of the, the most useful tool that we have at our disposal right now for separating truth from falsehoods, because these are the organizations that have been doing it for a very long time. But of course, you know, you have all of the same potential problems with fact checkers as you do with any other publication, which is, you know, is there bias coming in? Are the people working there and publishing these articles opinionated in certain ways? And the answer is yes and no. Um, we actually looked at a few different analyses of this. And so one study published in the Journal of Political Marketing, this was sort of one of the first one that did a good cross-examination of a lot of these, was uh, it looked at three fact-checkers, PolitiFact, FactCheck.org, and Washington Post fact-checker. And it found that when they all analyze the same claim, they tend to overwhelmingly agree on whether it's true or false. 
but the interesting thing about this is that it gets a little bit more nuanced when you look at um, when you look at the different scales of ratings. So like true, mostly true, half true, this sort of thing. And so a subsequent paper by Chloe Lim, PhD student at Stanford University. Um, oh, and the other thing is that the uh, they often don't look at the same statements. And so that's where some of the disparity comes in. So it's both of those things. But sort of the headline of this was that there were very little overlap in the statements that fact checkers look at. So this looked at PolitiFact and Fact Checker. And out of the 1,065 fact checks that PolitiFact looked at and the 240 fact checks that Washington Post looked at, only 70 statements were fact checked by both of them. And the study found that of the 70 statements, the fact checkers gave consistent ratings for 49 of them. So 47%. Which means that every one out of every five times, the two fact checkers disagreed on the accuracy of those statements. And so a lot of the nuance came in where, like I said, you had the different, you know, breakdowns of mostly true and that sort of thing. And it found that these were often, you know, one point off from from one to the other. Right. So and then the question becomes, if fact checkers are human and can be biased, why should we look at them for information? Well, kind of as Elias mentioned, they tend to agree quite a bit of the time, at least, you know, to some degree or another. But another reason why you should look at fact checkers is because they can be a great way for you to sort of inform your own analysis. Oftentimes, well, pretty much all the time with any sort of fact check, they have a sort of their reasoning um, with sources listed at the bottom. You know, PolitiFact just doesn't, you know, have a link that you click on that just says, you know, X statement is true or X statement is false. They provide their reasoning. And so you can check all the sources and search through the reasoning and uh, determine which of those sources uh, you think are valid. Um, you know, obviously you want to be as, as impartial as you can and sort of removing your own cognitive bias from that analysis. But as long as you're engaging with the sources in good faith, I think that, you know, that's a pretty good way to make sure that you're sort of checking the fact checkers. Another thing uh, to consider is that if fact checkers can't be trusted, then who can we trust? Because every media outlet is going to have profit motives and biases. You know, they're going to be more or less uh, playing to some demographic. And, you know, if you just go by your own intuition, that definitely leads to a subjective uh, cognitive bias. So fact checkers, at least in our opinion, are the, have the least incentive to lie. And then something else to think about is if something like PolitiFact or uh, Snopes or any of these organizations were outright lying or regularly uh, spreading misinformation, there would be consequences for those platforms um, or for those organizations, rather. So there's already a demand um, for some of these organizations to be like debunked. Uh, many people tend to reject the fact checks done by Snopes because oftentimes uh, Snopes fact checks disagree with them. Well, if there's a market for that uh, debunk to be met, then why isn't it met? Why hasn't somebody created uh, a fact checking organization that can match tit for tat some organization like PolitiFact or Snopes? And then also there could be legal repercussions for an organization, uh, organization consistently and erroneously claiming that others are spreading misinformation because then that could lead to defamation and uh, slander. Yes. So that's sort of the thought process behind looking up information online and verifying it and not necessarily trusting fact checkers, but looking to fact checkers for 
up-to-date info, looking at, you know, what information they're providing and sort of taking your analysis from there. So moving on, um, we know that misinformation is rampant on social media, especially, but also all over the internet. And so it's worth sort of, before we get into a lot of the uh, solutions and analyses that we have, just sort of like taking a minute to look at some of the more prominent examples uh, of, you know, historical misinformation and, and who's pushing it out there so that we can know how exactly to target it and circumvent it. Right. So what we want to do at this point is sort of examine uh, the large institutions that want to manipulate the population for economic personal gain. Um, and what I think is a really good way to look at this is to look at uh, starting with um, a company like ExxonMobil. And um, I'm referring to a Scientific American article and then which was reporting on a uh, report by Inside Climate News where they determined that corporate documents showed that Exxon was fully aware of the effects of burning fossil fuels as early as 1977, yet did not disclose this to the public at the time. As we know, rising CO2 emissions can lead to rising uh, global temperatures, and that's, you know, climate change is a very big problem. And they were aware of this problem, yet didn't disclose this. Um, as climate change became more and more a topic of discussion, uh, not only in scientific circles, but just political circles in general because of the consequences of it, they created the Global Climate Coalition in 1989, which worked to undermine the scientific basis for climate change concern, which the motive behind this is to delay any sort of regulation that may affect their profits. According to Greenpeace, um, uh, you can sort of take or leave that source as you will. I know a lot of people find it contentious, but um, ExxonMobil has spent approximately $30 million on think tanks that promote climate change denialism, despite that they were aware of the effects of rising temperatures being linked to rising CO2 levels. So how do these think tanks operate and how, do these, how does this misinformation sort of spread uh, in a rhetorical fashion? Well, it can be done in a number of ways. Uh, promoting logical fallacies. Um, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, if climate change is real, you know, why is it cold in X region or during X time of year or well, the climate changed prior, you know, we had the ice age. Um, so maybe the climate's just changing again. Both of these obfuscate a lot of the uh, scientific realities of climate change. The former, of you know different seasons being cold uh, doesn't take into account the overall yearly uh, averages of rising temperatures, and the latter you know not accounting for the sharp increase in CO2 emissions, much sharper than what we saw you know during other heating periods. And then promoting fake experts is another method. Um, an internet petition um, that was circling around was 31,000 experts who disputed the idea that man-made climate change was um, a serious problem or that man uh, was responsible for climate change uh, was being propagated. And then after further investigation, 99% of these experts had no expertise in climatology. They had varying different um, areas of expertise, but not necessarily to the subject. Yeah, that's a huge one. A lot of um I've seen a lot on uh, on social media of like um 
articles and things like that from these various blogs and websites that will claim like, oh, well, this expert says, you know, something against the scientific consensus and insert whatever here. Um, and so, well, look, this is what the experts are saying. And uh, or they'll try to do a proof by numbers. Like clearly, you know, this Internet petition had 31,000 experts. Can you really disagree with 31,000 people? Or they'll post a huge dump of like a 100 different, uh, you know, peer reviewed studies that say, you know, one various thing. Um, and oftentimes, if you look at it, you know, you can't just look at it at face value and say, oh, well, X number of people or X number of studies said this. A lot of times when you dig into each individual thing, you find out that it's taken out of context or like, you know, in this example, like you said, that a lot of these experts had no expertise in climatology. So it was not really relevant to whatever they were experts in. Right. So uh, so it's really important to be on the lookout for stuff like that. That sounds official, but it's made to sort of uh, misinform people. Right. It's it's definitely good to look at the minutia of whatever claim is being made, um, especially in the face of that. You know, I think at this point, uh, the idea that humans are causing climate change and that climate change is a serious issue shouldn't really be up for debate, given the amount of uh, academic consensus there is. There are uh, quite a few meta studies, meta analyses that, you know, take into account many different studies uh, that all kind of arrive at the same conclusion. Um so a lot of these tactics of either, you know, misrepresenting the science or providing false experts or cherry picking data, um, this, a lot of this originated uh, from the tobacco industry. Um, the tobacco industry, you know, famously promoting misinformation about smoking not being toxic or harmful or that they were, you know, um, selling uh, cigarettes that would put less tar in your lungs, sort of, again, to stall regulation that would affect their profits. So top CEOs of tobacco companies were aware of the bad press that was coming their way around the 1950s, and they created their own research committee. Um, I'm referring to an Atlantic article that sources heavily on a Center of Public Integrity article um, that we'll be delving into later a little bit here. But um, they created their own committee to uh, hire independent scientists that would argue sort of on their behalf to dismiss claims about association with cancer and other illnesses that come from smoking tobacco. However, it was as clear as 1964 when the Sur Surgeon General put out a report linking smoking to lung cancer. Um, despite this, uh, the tobacco industry spent tons of money to spread misinformation and fought tooth and nail for against any kind of regulation. Um, later, around the 90s or so, and then going forward, companies like uh, Philip Morris hired firms like Gradient Corp or Ramble Environ, uh, where scientists, these firms, the scientists that belong to them, argue that chemical products aren't harmful in, you know, a certain capacity or that these claims of harm are greatly overstated, anything that they can do to sort of stall the regulatory process that would affect their profits. So looking at Gradient Corp for an example, um, this is a company that its biggest clients are the American Petroleum Institute, um, Navistar, which is a diesel truck manufacturer, and then other chemical uh, and industrial chemical uh, producers. So the big problem with something like Gradient Corp is that it stalls regulation. Well, how does it do this? 
so to understand there are 80,000 chemicals that are available uh, on the market. And over the past 30 years to about 2016, the EPA has reviewed about 570. So the EPA has to review any chemical before passing any regulation on that chemical. This is where Gradient Corp comes in. They, on behalf of their clients, um, you know, industry that produces chemicals, will argue the efficacy of how the EPA is reviewing the scientific literature, or they will publish their own literature in journals like Critical Reviews in Toxicology and Regulatory Toxicology and Pharmacology, uh, which is a scientific journal which is peer-reviewed but heavily funded by um, a lot of these industries that are affected by these kinds of regulations. So, for example, if we look at uh, the regulations on arsenic that were going to be put in around 2013 or so, the EPA had determined that high consumption of arsenic led to higher rates of bladder cancer and lung cancer. Essentially, what is done here is that companies like Gradient Corp, um, on behalf of tobacco um, chemical producers, sort of create this tactic of stalling regulation by fighting. Um, tooth and nail um, questioning the efficacy of science that finds that whatever product might be toxic. Um, the goal is to keep profits going um, at the expense of those that might be negatively affected by that product. And they rely on you know, our regulatory bodies not being well-funded enough to be able to review all of the claims that you know Gradient Corp makes, for example, with uh, the arsenic regulations. Okay, so if corporations have for decades been this good, possibly even longer, at um, at sort of you know manipulating government agencies and pushing out their own firms that you know do this biased research and things like that, um, it seems like kind of a huge thing that the common people are up against. So, what would be some paths to uh to solving this problem do you think um in my opinion i think some of the solutions that we would advocate for would be providing more funding to regulatory agencies like the epa so that way that they one can contend the science better and you know um not have as much of a monkey wrench thrown in their analysis and review of products that they want to put regulations on but also allowing agencies like the EPA to engage in legislation to hold these corporate interests um, accountable. So another thing that we're going to want to do is look at who funds what studies. Um, obviously, conflict of interest is huge. If you have a private industry supporting a journal like the one I mentioned earlier, the Critical Reviews in Toxicology, don't dismiss these studies outright. However, look into what they're saying and take it with several grains of salt because obviously they're going to have a motive to represent their uh, benefactors as well as possible. Yeah, and a lot of times I, there's a lot of like um, almost like lying by omission sometimes with some of these studies where they'll like it's sort of like the same thing in uh, a lot of, you know, more sketchy like journalism sites where they'll focus on certain aspects and ignore other aspects. So you just kind of have to like look at the bigger picture and look at who's trying to, uh, you know, refute certain things and always look for evidence that kind of contradicts your own like preconceived narrative as well. It is kind of a scary issue when you think about all of the 
scientific peer-reviewed research that's out there and you know obviously a lot of this stuff is very well researched and unbiased um, but a lot of it is selective and so it's always just important to look at everything with the critical eye and not a critical eye as in like oh this doesn't fit what I believe so I don't trust it but um, you know just looking at everything really closely so besides large corporations we're going to go over kind of a lot of different uh, a lot of different types of groups of people that spread misinformation uh, just to show how widespread it really is. But sort of the next one we wanted to go over was um, websites that are, you know, independent media, independent blogs and things like that. And how we don't often think about the profit motive potentially that there might be behind them. But um, but sometimes there is one, even when they're claiming that they're giving us unbiased information and um so the most obvious example of this that pretty much everyone should be able to point to at this point is natural news um and so if anyone's not familiar they were sort of a infamous notorious uh alternative medicine blog uh that pushed a lot of conspiracy theories about how you know western medicine is all you know corrupted by big pharma and um and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people believe them at one point. They've kind of been thoroughly debunked a lot, so not a lot of people follow them anymore, I don't think. But uh, it's interesting looking at sort of their history because there were a lot of signs right from the start. So, for example, and this was just a quick and easy tidbit that you can find anywhere, the uh, the founder of this website, Michael Allen Adams, sort of promoted himself as someone who was pushing these products from a truly independent perspective. That's a quote from him. Um, and that was their whole thing is that like, oh, we're the unbiased people. Look at us for like, you know, true unbiased news. We're not bought out by anyone, that sort of thing. Um, and then it turned out that he had a financial interest in uh, one of the companies that was uh, that he was pushing. One of the common trends that we're seeing between uh, what you're talking about with natural news and sort of what I was discussing earlier with um, Gradient Corp, Tobacco, and uh, companies like ExxonMobil is that there is oftentimes a financial incentive for people to lie. And if you know they can spread misinformation basically for money, as in the misinformation allows them to either make money or stop things that would harm their ability to make money, then they're going to have that motive to spread that misinformation. So it's always good to try to follow the money and see uh, the financial interests, if you can, of whoever is um, propagating uh, any information, whether it's true or false. Uh, this isn't to say that, you know, 100% of people who uh, have a financial interest in something are always going to lie about that, but you should always be careful and uh, vigilant about that sort of thing yeah and that's sort of a common theme throughout um what we're talking about here is that you know there there's a lot of these like red flags that can pop up here and there but none of them are you know say definitively like oh this source is corrupt or this st study is corrupt or this person is corrupt right it's important to look at everything and um you know just analyze it for yourself um one of the tools that i find myself using a lot uh, especially when i see a website that I have not heard of um, is mediabiasfactcheck.com. A lot of uh, news organizations and other publications use this as a resource, but it basically ranks every website based on what the 
sort of political narrative that they tend to push on their website, whether it's by selective publishing or emotionally loaded headlines, things like that. And uh, and they also look at the factual basis that these websites tend to have. So they'll look at, you know, a list of recent claims that a website has made and just, you know, run a fact check on a bunch of them and then give it like a scale uh, from, you know, really bad to really good. Um, and so it's always interesting kind of seeing, you know, you, I highly encourage everyone to, you know, look, go to that website and look up some of their favorite sites and see how they might differ in terms of factual reporting, uh, in terms of, you know, left versus right. They have a lot of good resources about a lot of the television media as well. And interestingly enough, the print media of a lot of these same publications tends to be a little bit more fact-checked. You know, they're not relying on gluing people's eyes to the TV and that sort of thing, uh, at least not quite as much. Um, so that's a good source. And then I also found some tips online about, uh, you know, just not trusting things that you know, claims of expertise that people make online at face value, always looking for details. Um, so we have sort of this example that uh, was brought up where it says, you know, this person uh, who wrote this article, this is like a bio you might see at the top of it. This person is a serial entrepreneur as well as an investor and owner of a diversified portfolio of innovative digital companies. He's a consultant and well-regarded expert in the field of technology. And the interesting thing about this quote, this is something that, you know, might fool me if I was just browsing the internet and saw that, okay, this person seems like he has some credentials. But when you look more closely, you realize there are really no details about any of these credentials listed here. And this is pretty easily something that someone could just write on at the top of their website, you know, if, uh, and there's no way to really like verify it without the details of, you know, you know, which companies, um, and that sort of thing. So it's important to remember that even people who are generally pretty critical and pretty logical can also be fooled by a lot of these like really official looking, like for example, the national vaccine information center is another one where the website is made to look like, you know, an official kind of like government agency or whatever, but, um, it's, totally not it's it's independent and it pushes a particular narrative and ignores all data that's outside of that narrative um and it's pretty fascinating to see how that works um another source that we looked at is and this is especially pertinent to the capital riots which is related to QAnon, is sort of these meme pages that become popular and spread all over the internet and especially on you know facebook and reddit and a lot of these places and over the last two election cycles, a lot of these memes that were intended to polarize people and create confusion were traced back to this Russian company um, called the Internet Research Agency, which is not a research agency at all. Um, and basically their motive was to push like just straight up pro-Russian propaganda. And they've been doing this for years. Um as well as just to kind of weaken the United States uh, over the past two elections by kind of um, pushing these narratives and these emotional responses. And a lot of times the goal here was, you know, they would target different demographics, including different political ideologies. A few examples that were given, and this is uh, something that was reported by Wired, The Guardian, and New York Times, was that they would often sell the narrative of convincing people not to vote or voting third party or 
when they would target the evangelical vote, they would try to, you know, brush off the things that Trump has done that were not in line with religion. You know, they had kind of this like pro-Trump, pro-Russia agenda and say what you will about Trump in general. But these are things that have been well documented and well researched, regardless of your opinions on him. Also, and um, just to interject, mm -hmm. uh, the claims about Russia interference were confirmed by a uh, bipartisan Senate committee, uh, mainly headed by Republicans. So this isn't some sort of like right or uh, excuse me, left wing sort of uh, conspiracy theory about, you know, Russian interference. Um, this is something that, like Elias said, has been documented and uh, pretty well established at this point. Yeah. And and it's important to remember that and, and to not, you know, automatically assume that whatever information is out there that contradicts your narrative must be coming from, you know, someone who disagrees or whatever. Um, but it's interesting how many people don't actually know that fact that you brought up. But that just goes to show the the extent of echo chambers online. But yeah, and if you're interested in learning sort of more about these uh, this misinformation campaign that was really huge, um, the documentary Social Dilemma is uh, a super interesting one to watch. I know it uh, kind of went viral last year. A lot of people were canceling their Facebook accounts uh, after they watched it. And normally I don't recommend documentaries too much because it's harder to fact check them. There's more emotional ma manipulation that goes on a lot of the time compared to like articles. But this one was particularly well done and very much backed up by scientific and um, journalistic research. Sort of getting into our solutions based on these things. There's also actions that social media sites can take to, uh, you know, be more vigilant about tracking down troll accounts and things like that. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily want them to editorialize everything. Obviously, I don't think anyone wants that. But in the case of the, um, the you know, the Russian troll farm Internet Research Agency, you know, they did end up taking down um, hundreds of accounts uh, in 2018 after they were, you know, pressured to do so and after the damage um, had already been done um, to quite an extent. Um, but this is a pretty easy thing to do, you know, checking if certain pages are verified with ID and things like that, looking at to see if, you know, there's dozens of accounts coming from one area. Of course, they could use VPNs, but but there's definitely ways to track that as evidenced by the fact that they did so after they were pressured. And if it's too costly for social media companies, um, for some of them, then, you know, another option could be one thing that I've been hoping is that maybe more companies will spring up that are set up to exclusively handle looking at, you know, who's coming from a troll farm and who's not. And that way, you know, this work could sort of be outsourced to those companies and that way everyone could sort of take advantage of that. But we, regardless of how exactly we accomplish this, we need a very tough approach on these troll farms because they're not just you know, misinforming a few people and making them believe a couple crazy things, you know, they're impacting elections, they're undermining our elections, and they're um, undermining our trust in our institutions, which we rely on for, um, for almost everything, for proper information, for proper research. So it's very important that we do something about that in particular. Another thing that you want to look out for um, and another source of misinformation can be from uh, news organizations. 
And what you want to look for there is, or one of the things that you want to look for there, aside from, you know, their financial investors and that sort of thing, is understanding what ideology they're attempting to appeal to, what demographic they're attempting to appeal to. So, for example, um, after the 2020 election, at least in right-wing media circles, you started to see uh, many people jump ship from Fox News, uh, which traditionally was sort of the news outlet for right-wing media, as they started to accept the uh, claims, uh, the reality of the uh, 2020 election. In the media landscape, you saw the rise of organizations like OAN and uh, Newsmax, which, you know, tend to uh, report stories that are misleading or false. Um, and the purpose of them doing that is to capitalize on the audience uh, wants to hear that. Um, the people who, you know, still at this point don't believe that um, the election was legitimate or that Joe Biden is a, uh, a illegitimate president, um, so on and so forth, things that don't necessarily have a basis in reality. So understanding what audience uh, a news organization is attempting to capture and um, exploit, frankly, because if they're spreading this information just because those people want to hear it, then it creates sort of these uh, radicalized circles where, you know, you have swaths of the population that don't believe things that are necessarily true. So you always want to understand the source of the information, their financial interests, um, whether that be uh, who provides them funding or what demographic they're attempting to appeal to. And then another way to sort of stay vigilant uh, about information, just making sure that you have a correct assessment of reality is always updating your opinion with the most recent and best research. Um, you want to read from a wide variety of reputable sources and also be aware of your own biases because part of what makes information so easily spread and what makes people so susceptible to uh, misinformation is the cognitive bias and the psychological aspect of misinformation and how it spreads and gets cemented. So what you want to be aware of is how this can affect your information processing. So I'm referring to two different articles here, one from Psychology Today about climate denialism, and then a Snopes article about the psychology of COVID denialism. So part of what makes something like uh, denying the reality of climate change um, such a uh, insurmountable issue partly has to do with the fact that Climate science is not intuitive to the way that the human mind tends to work. We're not necessarily programmed to understand uh, statistical analyses or, um, you know, models that represent the evidence of um, climate science. And, and, and that's part of it, but that's not the full picture. Part of the fuller picture has to do with denial as a primitive defense mechanism to shield us from things that stress us out or cause us anxiety. And climate change is a really good example of something that does that. Not only are the consequences of climate change apocalyptic in nature, as we look at you know, what it means for our species in the coming decades, but also just in terms of whatever action we have to take against climate change, is stressful you know it involves uh mobilizing us in ways uh changing the way our economy functions um massive shifts probably to our personal lives 
increasing taxes probably to fund infrastructure projects, so on and so forth. And a lot of this seems overwhelming. So at some level, part of what motivates the denialism of climate change is the fear associated with it. And so what the article recommends, which I think is a really great idea, is encouraging small changes when applicable, right? So for example, um, you know, it's a lot, you're going to have a better chance of encouraging change from somebody, for instance, uh, rather than telling them, you know, you should, you should only eat uh, vegan food because, you know, eating meat contributes to, uh, you know, carbon output and carbon increases climate change, encouraging people to just reduce their meat intake or engage in like a meatless Monday. Not only does this have um, a small material benefit, which obviously is nothing in comparison to the large uh, structural and institutional change that needs to happen for us to address this problem, but it allows people to exercise some power over what makes them fearful, um, you know, by, you know, doing X thing that minorly inconveniences me or doesn't inconvenience me at all, um, I am acknowledging what might have been scaring me in the first place, which might have been motivating part of my denialism. And also what this does is it creates uh, the potential for movements where people are psychologically primed for larger organizing. So if Elias and I have some agreement where, you know, once a week or a couple times a week, we both agree like, hey, we're going to go ahead and walk to work or we're going to bike to work instead of driving to work. That creates networks for us to be able to engage in larger grassroots organization, which is what will be necessary uh, in order to enact, um, you know, larger structural change. Because obviously, like, that's the goal with something like climate change. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying here as, like, you know, we can all do our little part and then, you know, juke climate change. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. What I am saying is that encouraging small change does uh allows an opportunity for larger movements to occur yeah that's a really cool idea especially the group thing like i like anything that kind of gets people involved because i think that a huge problem nowadays is just like the doomer mentality of like oh like the system is so much bigger than us and there's nothing we can do you know i think that starting small and then feeling like you're involved feeling like you're doing something can have like a snowball effect like you said and, and get people uh primed for larger organizing and then you know that's kind of what we're trying to do on this podcast ultimately is try to figure out ways that each of us can do something to help whatever issue is on our minds and then you know gets us all more informed more involved and hopefully makes the world a better place absolutely you know, and again, I really want to stress that the best change for climate change has to come from structural change, but a great way to get there is by doing your little part in the here and now. Another thing that motivates, um, you know, certain denying certain things that have substantial or, you know, conclusive evidence associated with it are in-group mentalities and how we prefer uh, our own groups, right? And this is something that applies to everybody because everybody, um, especially those who, you know, have opinions on these matters, are a part of an ideological group. And in order to be a part of that ideological group, you have to believe certain things about the world, you know, in order to be part of that, right? In order to be, you know, a leftist, you have to believe certain things about the world. In order to be a conservative, you have to believe certain things 
about the world. And so when these beliefs about the world as we interpret them are challenged, it can oftentimes become personal and we interpret it as personal and don't uh, engage with the evidence in a total uh, unbiased way. So there was a 2015 meta-analysis published in the Sage Journal that looked at people's opinions when it came to climate change and, and analyzed and took into account their politics as well as their knowledge about political science, energy policy, what have you. And what they found was that those that are more polarized, you know, conservatives, uh, even those that were ranked the highest levels in cognitive sophistication and quantitative reasoning skills were more likely to believe uh, climate uh, conspiracies. Similarly, uh, liberals that you know were presented hypothetical consensuses about um, nuclear waste management also disregarded that evidence to kind of hold on to their own beliefs. So what you have is, especially you know in our modern political landscape, people who are polarized and on one side of the issue in their group, um, are not able to contend with the evidence, even when those people are smart. So something that I kind of want to stress with this point is that it's not just people not being smart or not being willing to understand, right? Like, I feel like a lot of times people are really dismissive and really um, misanthropic about how, uh, you know, like, oh, these people don't believe that masks are effective. They must all be stupid. That's not necessarily the case. You know, a lot of some of these people are, you know, integrated members of society who have uh, high demanding jobs, you know, that require a high level of cognitive function. I mean, even in flat earth circles, you see that kind of thing. And what it is, is uh, a preference to sort of in-group psychology. And, uh, you know, the idea of once my uh, worldview is challenged, it then becomes personal. So, for example, if political leaders of a certain faction and partisan media are telling the populace, like, COVID is overblown versus the scientific experts that are saying, no, it's not. If somebody already believes the former, then they think that the latter is an attack on their identity. So the in-group preferences thing is kind of a tough issue to solve because it's something that is kind of ingrained in all of us, right? It's kind of a uh, just a like a biological social habit that we all have. But one way we can attempt to counteract that in our own sort of discussions with people is, you know, we're all going to have disagreements. And one of the key things to do, in my opinion, is just to not be combative with the other person and to understand their thoughts, understand their beliefs. Um, this is a good... It's kind of twofold. One, this is a good like if you look if you're looking at it in a sort of a Machiavellian sense, it's a good tactic to like get people on your side. But then like the better reason to do it is because it helps us all grow. You know, you might learn something from someone who you thought was crazy and, you know, they'll learn a little bit about your perspective, you know, sort of the, the whole marketplace of ideas thing, which, you know, is its own bag of worms. But for the purpose of this argument, um, it is something that, you know, that I have seen be effective at least in personal conversations if you see someone who is presenting you know info from some sort of source that's biased or you've looked at it and it appears that you know they're using false uh information then you know it's usually not a great idea to just like 
well, depending on who you're talking to, you can kind of judge it for yourself. Um, but usually not a great idea to just like attack the info or attack the source of the information, but, you know, rather to, um, look at it in more of a positive light and, uh, recommend a different source if you have something that's genuinely better, um, and kind of point them in that direction and say, okay, what do you think about this? You know, I was having a conversation with, uh, one of my buddies the other day on Facebook about sort of the minimum wage. And it was something that we both kind of had agreements and disagreements on, you know, cause I have a little bit more of a centristy position on it, but, um, but it was cool. I mean, he shared his articles. I shared my articles. We sort of like commented on both of them and read them and um, didn't really continue the conversation for, for too long. But like, I feel like I learned something and I am hoping that he feel like, felt like he learned something, you know? And then just, you know, like we said before, always looking for evidence that contradicts your beliefs. Um, you know, if you believe something, don't like if you believe, for example, you know, minimum wage is a good idea. Don't do a Google search for here's why minimum wage is a good idea. You know, look for why it's a bad idea and look for what the counter arguments are that uh, that you might not have heard before. You know, and it gets difficult with more emotionally loaded uh, topics, you know, um, war, poverty, crime, that sort of thing. But we have to remember that when we're looking at policy, when we're looking at action, a lot of these solutions are going to be fact-driven and we have to know what the facts are in order to even start the conversation, you know? And then still within the topic of like, you know, we're trying to figure out how misinformation spreads so deeply on the internet. And obviously we can't really have this discussion without also talking about the algorithms of social media, um, which kind of harkens back to the uh the profit motives that we've seen throughout all media throughout history really which is that generally they're trying to maintain your attention um because ad models the ad-based business models depend on you um, being active on a particular website or on a particular news network uh, for a certain amount of time so that they can present you with more ads and especially nowadays those ads are personalized and so there's privacy implications there, which of course has been, you know, pretty well uh, researched and talked about. But uh, of course, above it all, this has wide implications for the spread of false information. And so in, in 2016, we had a study that studied 3000 Americans leading up to the 2016 election and found that Facebook referred people to false news 15% of the time out of all the articles that were shared. And so it was kind of in that study, it was uh, documented as the main perpetrator of false information in 2016. And so these algorithms lead to echo chambers, of course, because they tell you exactly what you want to hear. And so, you know, this includes YouTube with its related video algorithm, um, but also pretty much any modern social network always. And this is hearkening back to the social dilemma documentary I was talking about, which sort of introduced me to this topic. It goes over sort of just how the social media sites have a profit motive to, you know, keep you watching. And they do that by showing you uh, stuff that's similar to what you've already seen. And so, of course, these echo chambers develop and it's a huge problem. And the reason it's a huge problem, as we said earlier, um, false information kind of fits in with these echo chambers because it's easier if you're making something up to fit a specific narrative. It's, you know, it's more exciting for people who are into that narrative. And especially because these types of people who are inside these ideologies are going to be less critical, less uh, likely to fact check than 
people who are you know less politically involved um, or have you know more moderate beliefs or things like that uh, or don't use social media very often and so don't get you know spied on to to show them what to, uh, social media sites think that they might like so this is a huge problem and there are a lot of potential solutions to this problem which we'll sort of go over one by one part of it has to do with the way social media sites operate so you know the most basic thing that we could say is that social media sites because they have the freedom to moderate however they want we can always pressure them to be better about moderating false information so we've already kind of improved with uh the fact that you know twitter regularly adds fact checks to certain tweets that contain false information and once again verifiably false information where you can click through and see the reasoning that they're using but We've had companies take the charge on this after being pressured to do so from the last two election cycles, but of course they could always be doing more. But the sort of the bigger issue at hand here is, well, that's that tendency to fact check sort of goes against the business model that I just described. False information is very profitable because like I said, it keeps your eyes glued. And so some of the solutions relating to that get a little trickier because essentially the ideal solution would be to get rid of ads and move social media sites towards a subscription model. I don't think a subscription model social media site would have as many willing uh, uh, consumers. Economic theory would say that if a subscription model was as viable as an ad-based model, then you would see some of those competitors springing up uh, that were using the subscription model. And so that alone kind of tells me that it's it's possible that if, you know, if there was some sort of, uh, if there was a major public pressure to, you know, not have ad-based social media sites, or if everyone started boycotting the uh, ad-based media sites, or even just the, you know, personally targeted, privacy-invasive ad-based social media sites. Assuming that movement was successful, I don't think there'd be a way for those companies to really recoup the costs of that. Um, and I'm personally okay with that. They already make a ton of money. And so they would probably end up doing fine in the end, but they certainly wouldn't be as profitable as they currently are. And so that's basically why there would be kind of a pushback if, you know, there'd be a large pushback if, there, if we had a movement around that. Now, we can't really do this legislatively because um, one thing I actually looked up recently is as an attempt to find a compromise with this solution is taxing internet ads, taxing digital advertising in general to essentially dissuade people from using that as their business model. And I read an interesting Forbes article that kind of listed out the First Amendment problems with this. And that idea just sort of seems dead in the water. It also violates the Permanent Internet Tax Freedom Act. And so there's just a lot of sort of like regulations and huge laws we have in place against like any sort of legislation that tells websites what they can and cannot publish, essentially. And we're going to be getting into that even more when we get into the Section 230 area, which is going to be super interesting. The other thing to think about, some tech people have been advocating that we move to decentralized and open source social networks. and so. Sort of the idea behind this is that instead of going to facebook.com and signing up for an account there, basically you would sign up for a particular 
they call them instances, but these are basically servers that host websites. You'd sign up for a particular instance of a social media site. Uh, the most popular one right now is Mastodon, which is very similar to Twitter. And there'd be a tons of these instances that talk to each other, basically. So you sign up for your instance and your friend might sign up for the same one or a different one. And either way, you'd both be able to see each other's posts and follow each other and talk to each other. Um, it's, and it's sort of the same idea of like blockchain and a lot of these like other like federated web ideas where it's very much against the idea of like a top-down single ownership of, uh, of a particular website. It's kind of, you know, you can make your own app if you want to. And then that app, as long as it uses the same network protocol, can interact with any other app. And so this is nice because it's sort of, you know, it eases both the fears that some people on one side have of like, you know, misinformation getting out there and the, you know, sort of the other side, which is overbearing moderation. You know, uh, it essentially puts the user back in control because there's not going to be any algorithms that manipulate them. You know, you only follow the people you want to follow. And this is a fantastic idea in theory right now. Uh, it doesn't appear super economically viable because even worse than sort of the uh, subscription model idea with a decentralized platform, you basically any app that uses, you know, these algorithms that are privacy invasive and spy on you and things like that. Uh, one, you'd be able to look at the code because most likely all of these would be open source. And two, uh, any one that was sort of caught doing this there'd be no reason to stay on their platform because you could just as easily go to a different one that, um, that doesn't do any of that. Right. And it sort of just like goes against how the entire system works to even have like privacy invasive algorithms and things like that. And so it's a cool idea and I look forward to potentially one day this being profitable. We could actually bring a subscription model to this if you wanted to pay for a particular, you know, high density server. But there's a lot of potential avenues to go down as far as the decentralized model. But I figured I'd throw the idea out there, even though it might not be totally ready. There's websites that you can sign up for to kind of try it out. We'll list those in the show notes. And I think it's a pretty interesting idea for, you know, for the future, possibly near future, possibly far future. And... Then lastly about social media, uh, regardless of whether we go through a decentralized model or a subscription model or whatever, I think any platform that moderates its content, um, and this is something that I saw brought up in one of the articles by EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, sort of proposed this, is that if social media site bans someone, it should be fully transparent. It should be available for everyone to see so that you can see if there's any sort of bias going on. Um, and this gives, you know, gives consumers more of a choice about, you know, which social media sites they want to support. Uh, it lets them make that decision based on their own viewing of things. So we've listed out a ton of problems with social media, some potential solutions, and sort of at the heart of a lot of this is a bill that was passed into law in 1996, uh, part of the Communications Decency Act called, and the, this particular section of it was called Section 230. And so, yeah, we're going to sort of dig into what Section 230 is and how we feel it should be, you know, approached um, going forward. So Section 230 basically protects platforms from liability 
uh, and doesn't hold them responsible for what users post or share on that platform. So um, it protects people in a variety of ways. So if um, I forward an email or I share a Facebook story that is, uh, you know, misinformation or could be, you know, found to be defamatory, Facebook is not held responsible for that. And neither am I. Only the uh, publisher is held responsible for uh, spreading that misinformation. And Section 230 also encourages platforms to engage in good faith moderation to ensure that hate speech, uh, misinformation, and that sort of thing are not being spread on their platforms. Section 230 is a very contentious uh, piece of legislation. People on the right wing tend to believe that uh, Section 230 bans right wing speakers and conservatives. People who are more left leaning think that Section 230 lets companies off the hook for, you know, spreading hateful misinformation, uh, that sort of thing. A lot of politicians successfully and unsuccessfully have proposed amendments to it or threatened to remove it outright. This could be successful in mitigating misinformation. It would leave many websites completely in the dust and have a devastating impact on our ability to freely share information. Um, a lot of how our internet landscape uh, looks today is in part of Section 230 and how it allows uh, certain people to engage in content. One of the amendments that was passed in 2018 was the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act um, and Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, uh, FOSTA and SESTA, which held platforms liable if it was determined that the platform was facilitating prostitution or sex crimes or any sort of abuse like that. Um, however, one of the big issues with this law was the broad language of the bill, which included those who were either providing support for victims of child abuse or were advocating for victims of sexual assault and that sort of thing. Um, so part of the issue with any sort of amendment to 230, as I see it, is that the language has to be pretty specific. Otherwise, you know, unintentionally, we're going to hurt people who are actually trying to do good. And I think um, the passing of the FOSTA-SESTA uh, is a good example of that, like good intention, but having negative consequences for the people who are already trying to fight that online. Yeah, and the the implications of this were pretty wide. Like a lot of people are speculating that this is sort of why Tumblr Tumblr infamously took down all their sexual content is just because like pretty much anything involving sex whatsoever uh, was seen as like oh this could potentially you know violate this law and then we could be held accountable and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it wasn't confirmed that that was the reason why, but uh, that's been sort of speculated by a lot of people. So yeah, Fosta Sesta and as we'll see, most of the amendments that have been proposed and signed into law of Section 230 have been widely criticized by technology enthusiasts uh, and free speech advocates. So sort of the next big one that made the news earlier last year was the Earn It Act. This was a bill sponsored by Lindsey Graham. It was a bipartisan bill that uh, thankfully hasn't you know, made its way into being an actual law. But um, essentially what this law uh, aimed to do 
was um, force companies to work with law enforcement uh, as far as like, you know, we believe that some criminal activity took place. Send us all of the Facebook messages from this person and that sort of thing, you know, uh, and companies would have basically been forced to comply with uh, with the law and hand over any user information that was needed to crack whatever case. And this also included, um, perhaps most controversially, any social network that uses end-to-end encryption. So end-to-end encryption, for those of you who don't know, uh, essentially makes it so that whoever is hosting the data can't see your messages. So um, like WhatsApp would be the best example of this, even though WhatsApp does store a lot of information. Probably a better example nowadays would be Signal, where basically you send a message to other people, it goes through an encryption algorithm so that in their database, it just looks like a bunch of scrambled uh, characters, and then it's able to be decrypted on the other end. And so uh, the big criticism of the Earn It Act, uh, one of the big criticisms, was that essentially it forces any social media company or any messaging app to have to break encryption because you you know they basically have no choice but to hand over whatever messages to law enforcement. So there has to be a backdoor into that encryption somewhere. Privacy and the ability to encrypt your messages uh, is not just important for, you know, people who want to engage in criminal activity or whatever. It's kind of an important fundamental technology, right, for a number of reasons. So, you know, one is, of course, uh, protection against hackers. Even big companies with huge security teams are getting hacked every now and then. And, if hackers obtain, even if Google doesn't necessarily care about, you know, where you were walking your dog the other day, there could be people out there who use that information maliciously to learn information about you, to spy on you and all sorts of nefarious things. Um, businesses care a lot about being able to encrypt their data because they have business secrets that don't want to get out. You know, this law would essentially be terrible for them as well. And then, of course, the, you know, sort of the almost obvious uh, thing at this point, but still need to be reminded of, is that the government can be corrupted and often is to, uh, you know, if the if law enforcement needs access to particular data, you know, you don't necessarily know what they want to use that for. Um, And that could have a lot of really scary implications. Probably the most damning example of this that took place last year was... um, This man in Florida who was accused of robbery because he had his Google location services on while he was on a bike ride. And essentially, Google handed over his location data to law enforcement because they were trying to figure out who robbed a particular place. And that just happened to be on his path. And so if it wasn't for his lawyer essentially proving his case that he was innocent, you know, we don't know how that would have turned out. And uh, I'd imagine that would be very scary for anyone going through that and having to defend themselves in that case. So the ability to have information on your phone, on whatever device, shared with other people and, you know, but still private, so only you have access to it, um, it's a very important right for a number of reasons. And the Earn It Act would have completely taken that away. And so that's just one example of a 230 amendment that could have caused a lot of problems uh, with regards to user privacy. And that's sort of a pattern we've seen with a lot of these um, 230 amendments. But then the next one that we wanted to talk about was a more recent proposition. This was proposed, uh, I think, just a few months ago, actually. It's called the Protecting Americans from Dangerous Algorithms Act. And this might be 
probably the least problematic um, 230 amendment I've seen. I don't know. Would you agree with that, Grant? Yeah, from what I've from what we've uh, talked about here, it seems like um, obviously we don't know what it would look like uh, once it's enacted because that's kind of a different story, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at like intention versus like actual reality once it's implemented. Um, but from from the wording of it, it doesn't seem as terrible as the Earn It Act for sure. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, but basically what this act was in the title, we have protecting Americans from dangerous algorithms. Uh, and so the idea is, well, I'll just read the sort of the quote. Uh, if platforms use an algorithm, model or computational process to rank, order, promote, recommend or amplify user provided content, the bill would remove 230's protection in suits seeking to hold platforms responsible for active terrorism or failures to prevent violations of civil rights. So in summary, essentially, if you use an algorithm to uh, to you know, to sort content, to show people more of what they want to see or show people certain things based on their political background, based on whatever advertiser-friendly topic they want, then that they basically lose their 230 protections. And Facebook gets treated as a publisher of all the content that it hosts. Now, I don't know if entirely, you know, this is something we talked about for a little bit. Uh, We're not sure if removing the 230 protections entirely is warranted, and there's been a lot of sort of pushback against that. But this is one area where it might be reasonable to at least, you know, fine companies for, you know, knowingly pushing misinformation or just for even, you know, using these algorithms, which can be useful if you want to find more related videos, but, you know, often has massive side effects, you know, the alt-right pipeline, which we've all heard of at this point and that sort of thing. So, so I don't know about this one. I'm still sort of on the fence about it, you know, as someone who likes, you know, freedom of speech, the ability for internet companies to sort of manage their things how they want. I have my doubts and skepticism, but I do like the way that they're tackling this issue because I do think, as we've discussed, the algorithms are really kind of at the heart of a lot of this. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, And I think that even, um, I think removing uh, 230 protections entirely um, is pretty harsh and might have some negative consequences. Um, But I think that at the heart of that, um, recognizing that algorithms uh that that does seem to be kind of the big issue especially with like misinformation as it pertains to facebook and other social media so i think our approach to 230 should be that um we should understand that 230 does a lot of good right it it protects platforms um from being held liable for everything said on their platform right facebook doesn't have to go to court over every uh, defamatory statement made by one of its many, many users, right? That it kind of it becomes like a legal nightmare for any platform that um, wants to host user content and, and, and basically makes it impossible for us to have uh, any sort of like social media or platform where I can say what I want to say and Elias can say what he wants to say. So at the basis, I think both Elias and I agree that Section 230 is pretty good. Um, However, there are uh, certain problems and there should be some way to address the algorithm problems where, uh, you know, companies benefit from creating and um, sort of facilitating content that either spreads misinformation or hate speech or anything like that. 
so trying to balance that is a good idea but on the whole i think elias and i both agree that 230 is a uh, net good for our internet landscape definitely um yeah i mean it's it's called the backbone of the internet for a good reason you know um it enables pretty much every website we that we use today to exist because you know we can post the things that we want and we're the ones who are held liable for them and you know doesn't go so far as to make everything a public forum where everything's allowed but uh, i think having those moderation capabilities is uh, is a kind of a perfect balance there and yeah. i wish that more people sort of outside of the tech world understood sort of the weight of 230 you know we've had both biden and trump talking about like you know repealing it and amending it and all these sort of things and i, I think that uh, there's often not enough attention paid to just how important it is for the things that we do and not to say that there couldn't be a a better internet with some other sort of law in place but for now i haven't seen anyone propose like a, a better solution that remains everything intact but you know we'll see what the future holds absolutely and yeah without section 230 nobody would want to make a facebook or a twitter or anything because yeah. then they would be legally responsible and so you wouldn't have any sort of social media platform to uh, sort of organize and advocate, which a lot of people want to use social media for, aside from, you know, just posting pictures of their friends and stuff. Alrighty, so that just about wraps up our episode today. Um, in terms of the solutions, it's kind of a wide net of things, both uh, on a legislative front and what you can do in your own personal life. So when it comes to uh, your personal life, um, when you're engaging with content, you always want to be a critical thinker. You always want to look at who's funding the studies. You can look. Uh, you can use websites like uh, MediaBiasFactCheck.com to um, see sort of the reputability uh, and the history of certain organizations. Um, on the legislative front, we can advocate for more funding and power to regulatory bodies uh like the epa so that way they can crack down on private firms which engage in spreading misinformation to protect their bottom line and also holding corporations accountable by imposing fines for any behavior like this and if it can be determined that they knowingly spread misinformation uh, that led to material harms um, obviously on a case-by-case -case basis um, to advocate for criminal penalties in that regard. Um, Elias went over the business side of things and how the future of social media might look different um, from sort of what Facebook uh, offers, um, you know, sort of uh, more decentralized options and uh, subscription-based options. Also, uh, we should advocate to hold corporations accountable by imposing uh, fines on any kind of uh, behavior where they engage in misinformation propagation, and if there are grounds to do so, um, hold them criminally uh, liable. Yeah, and uh, that kind of includes social media sites as well, as far as... Um, being vigilant about tracking down these troll accounts that come from random places that aren't verified and, you know, making sure that they're using their algorithms in ways that don't perpetuate so much false information. Kind of a tough hill to climb, but um, I think that it's absolutely necessary for going forward. Yeah. And when you're engaging with, uh, you know, different uh, opinions and sort of in like 
the marketplace of ideas. I know that's kind of a bit of a meme, but when you are engaging with people, um, you know, because things are so polarized, you should be aware of your own cognitive biases and how they infect uh, your information processing. Also being aware of how um, denialism plays a role in people just not accepting certain facts. And so what you want to do whenever somebody is doing that in light of something like climate change, where it's sort of a defense mechanism, is encourage small change. Um, That is easy for them to uh, engage with. So that way, you know, they're at least able to, one, have a very small positive effect, but more importantly, be able to actually address that issue um, in in some capacity, hopefully leading to a snowball of larger, more positive change. Definitely. You're also going to want to look at evidence that contradicts your beliefs. Um, You know, uh, obviously you want to go with things that are reputable sources and whatnot, but you know, don't be opposed to having your beliefs challenged. Um, Try to engage in good faith when you can with uh, people who disagree with you. So in addition to that, and we're probably going to pick one of these as our, um, you know, fundraiser that we do every episode, but um, donating to and just in general supporting fact-checking organizations, uh, because as we've said, they have the least incentive to lie about these things, and they can, you know, as we've seen, especially the past four years, um, but even before that, they are absolutely essential to making sure that we can properly separate truth from falsehoods and you know misinformation from what's actually existing in the world so with that um looks like we've got a lot of solutions out there that we can kind of like carry through to our lives things that we can talk about with other people things that we can support ways to critically think as well as some legislative ideas and some ideas that social media sites can enact Thank you guys for listening. Uh, We really appreciate it. Um, As always, let us know your thoughts on uh, the Facebook, the Instagram, the Reddit, uh, the Discord, which Elias has made. Um, I'm told we're getting a bot that's going to be pretty (laughs) cool soon. I'm kind of an old man, so I don't really know what that means, but I'm super (laughs) excited. And as always, we're going to have our article on medium.com forward slash solutions where you can read up on the sources that we used for this episode. We really want to encourage um, interaction with you guys and being able to sort of create like a collaborative process here. Yes, because if we said anything wrong, we want you to fact check us. Yeah, we don't want to be the misinformation, you know? (laughs) 